Previously on Storyological. A lovely Tempranillo for our last episode. Indeed, recommended to us by the um, Saint Nicholas of Stinner. <laughs> yes. The, the lesser known saint. Um, the saint of... Um, Tbilisi. Uh, yeah, the, the saint of Tbilisi. Um, he uh, conjures over. That's not a word. I mean, the, both Rains. of those are words. Rains over. Not together. Um, blesses. Blesses right. feasts. Yeah. Before one has a feast, one should say a thanks to the Saint Nicholas of Stinner. Yeah, that's true. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is ZZ Packer's Every Tongue Shall Confess from the early noughties, uh, originally published in Plowshares. I will begin this evening with a reading from Every Tongue Shall Confess. The first paragraph is as such... As Pastor Everett made the announcements that began the service, Clarice Mitchell stood with her choir members, knowing that once again she had to persevere, put on the strong armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness. But she was having her monthly womanly troubles, and all she wanted to do was curse the Brothers Church Council of Greater Christ, Emmanuel Church of the Fire Baptized, who decided that the sisters had to wear white every missionary Sunday, which was, of course, the day of the month when her womanly troubles were always at their absolute worst. And to think that the Brothers Church Council of Greater Christ Emmanuel Church of the Fire Baptized had been the first place she'd looked for guidance and companionship nearly ten years ago when her Aunt Alma had fallen ill. And why not? They were God-fearing church-going men, men like Deacon Julian Jeffers, now sitting in the first row of pews, closest to the altar, right under the leafy top of the corn plant she'd brought in to make the sanctuary more homey. Two months ago, she'd been reading the Book of Micah and posed the idea of a Book of Micah discussion group to the Deacon Jeffers, and he'd said, Oh, Sister Clarice, we should make you a deacon. Which, of course, they didn't. Deacons like pastors were men. Not that she was complaining. But it still rankled that Jeffers had said he'd get back to her about that Micah discussion group, and he never had. So that's the way that story starts. <laughs> yeah, and and then it continues much along those lines. Uh, and so it does, yeah. It goes on like that. The story is about Sister Clarice, a woman doubled over in pain in more ways than one, burdened by the view of herself, the view of the church that she wears upon herself. The story is compressed into this one moment, the sermon this church service. It is all happening right then. And as the story progresses, as Clarice, she's got the cramp in her gut from the period, it gets connected back into this relationship, this meeting she had with a man named Cleophas, a blues man, one time known as Delta Sweetmeat. (laughs) And, And Becker goes back and forth, keeping you right in the moment of the sermon and bouncing back. Uh, to the interactions between Clarice and Cleophas, building up to this moment at the end of the sermon where when Cleophas comes back into the story, comes into the present moment, the, the woman, Clarice, that had, at the beginning had been singing along with the choir even though she wasn't feeling the words. At that moment at the end of the story, Cleophas comes, comes to the church where Clarice is and the choir sits down, but Clarice doesn't. And, and the story just ends there with her standing and Cleophas coming down, almost like to a wedding, coming yeah. down the aisle. And oh, I love how this is a story that is so funny. And it, it knows 
the form of a certain kind of church service so well that it can make fun of it. At the same time, the story itself communicates a sense of testimony and salvation that feels so real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that it takes it apart beautifully and says, this particular service, this particular pastor may not be, you know, may be obsessed with props and with showmanship and, mm. and perhaps not doing doing God, let's say, not doing God in the way that Clarice wants uh, wants her faith to be exhibited. Not doing justice to the Lord. Not doing justice to the Lord. But it doesn't, at any moment, I feel like, take down the idea of religion or the idea of faith as being a bad thing. On the contrary, we see Clarice wrestling with it, right? She wrestles with this idea of what her faith is inside herself, which seems this very true, honest, kind thing versus what she is told by external parties her religion should be whether that's by her pastor uh making this whole song and dance out of god calling you on the telephone Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you do not put the lord (laughs) on call you know who's putting herself on hold no clarice yeah you think yeah she's putting herself (laughs) on hold she needs to pick up that call she needs to listen to her gut and then you've got the other the other aspects of people telling her how to be religious as well you've got that awful deacon who comes Mm. by her house eats her food and then proceeds to sexually assault her and then the worst of it he gets upset when he puts his fingers in her and she turns out to be bleeding like oh wow you are not even good enough or clean enough for me to assault right now. Like, I know, the right? The nastiness I, of that. It's so Trumpian. It's just... Mm. Oh, I just I, I just get stuck in this kind of uh, vicious circle of all the reasons that is wrong and horrible. Yeah, and it's so wrong, right? And it, and it helps drill in this idea of, of Clarice putting herself on hold, for lack of a better metaphor right now. Because she doesn't tell anyone. No. She still goes back <laughs> to the like, church. Oh, I could have just... probably forgiven him, you know, if it wasn't for the fact he ignored me afterward. Yeah. Like, that is really not the worst bit about the whole episode, Clarice. No, no, no. I love the, the, the phrase you use, wrestling. Because we saw Jonathan Safran Foer. He talked about, again, that, that story from the Bible about Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And, uh, and such, Jacob's name became Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And... That's what this story felt like. It was like one prolonged wrestling with, with her faith and with her feelings about Cleophas that was, you know, yeah. bubbling up, right? Like the, the period, this cramp in her gut is also like this this love, this attraction, this something towards Cleophas that she doesn't know what to mm. do with. And she just squeezes it in. She tries to <laughs> wrestle it down. And I love that like part of what is religious is the idea that the source of your pain can be the source of your salvation. That mm. this thing that you're wrestling with will be the thing that allows you to kind of transcend into yourself, not to some higher plane, but into this one. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think the Cleophas is is the third leg of the thing I was talking about with the, all the people telling her how her religion should be, because at first he's very resistant to her religion and kind of mocks her for it. But then when he turns up at the end of this church service, he it's him accepting that this is who mm-hmm. she is and he likes her so he doesn't believe in the lord but he's very happy to come to the place where she is in order to be part of her life and of all the other all the people in the story he is the only person that really just accepts her for who she is mm-hmm. and doesn't try to tell her she should be something else yeah yeah he he comes to meet her where she is mm-hmm. emotionally physically psychologically one of the reasons why i picked this story 
because this is this is really our last episode where we'll talk about stories. We're going to have a, a year-end wrap-up next episode. Um, but I picked this story for a few reasons. Uh, one, the... The, the U.S. election had me in a place where some reason I just, I just, I just thought of this story. I don't know. I just, I went to this story and listening to you talk about it, I wonder if part of it is, one, the, the kind of, uh, the, the language, which is kind of on fire with, mm. with a woman who is inscribed by these men that is, that is, that is, that is squeezed somehow and not just by them, but also by an image of herself doubled over and and cramped. Uh, and you know, 10 years ago I read this and, and the moment where she is standing at the end has stayed with me. And I think that partly just came back to me, this image Mm -hmm. of, of a black woman in a church standing alone and, and finally fully upright. And also because with this podcast, we've been talking about stories, and this is one of the first stories I read in one of my first writing classes with oh. Michael Knight. And I remember writing a response to it where I think for the first time I understood what it was to write about a story and, and somehow be possessed by the spirit of it. Because yeah. I wanted to figure out a way. I was so in love with the ratatatness of the language, the sense that the way Zizi Packer had written those sentences, it is though the woman was in the line of fire of her own rage turn inward the the sentences will often go and it's like they will catch on themselves and drill down deeper these little bits of clauses that is like as if Clarice didn't have enough of this at the hospital or if the sisters could even forgive deacons they just keep drilling down right yeah like like she's internalized all of the crushing weight of of lack of expectation that's been put on her almost like putting her in her box in a box and and she's internalized that yeah, and that internalization felt like this prolonged punch to the gut. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed how all of those failings and some of them not failings, but her perceiving herself as being weak or less than are just exposed to us as the reader. Like when she's making the patient's bed and she really wants to hit him because his laugh is annoying her. And all, of, you know, every moment is filled with this kind of honesty of who she is but laced with that wrestling of who she is versus who she wants to be, you know? I guess, and that's counterbalanced. Like her, the honesty of her as a, char- as a character is counterbalanced by the fact that there's so much other human failing in this story. Like the woman who gives her kid uh, insecticide because he eats ants. And you think, oh, it's probably not a great plan. And And how Clarice, when she discovers this, she... She credits the Lord with giving her the incentive or the impetus to stay talking to this woman to discover this fact. But the story never makes a judgment about whether it really has come from the Lord or whether it comes from the goodness of Clarice herself, that she just works hard to empathize with people. And I I enjoy that lack of judgment on the story's part. You know, it's just presented completely in Clarice's viewpoint. Yeah, and I think that might be one of the other reasons why this story fluttered in, you know, maybe the voice of God speaking to me yep. after Trump was elected. Because, you know, you you talked about religion. You talked about these two people, like uh, Cleophas coming to meet her where she was. And you talked there about her hard work at empathizing, even though like part of what's wrestling with her all the time is that she's still... It feels like she is almost incapable of not imagining people complexly. 
She's always thinking about them and why they might or might not do. Now, to be fair, occasionally that manifests itself as, as imagining why they're failing. But she will never bring herself, it seems, even the person who sexually assaulted her, she so you know, could read it as a failing a little bit. She it's mm-hmm. like she can't bring herself to really condemn anyone completely. Um Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that about Clarice. Uh, I don't remember if it was this story or not, but there was one story where I wrote a response in Michael Knight's class, that first writing class I had, where while writing the response, I wrote, is it possible to think too much about a story? <laughs> and Michael wrote above it, no, period. <laughs> and and you've been thinking about it for 10 years. Yeah, I'm still thinking about it. And whether or not it was this story, reading it again, I thought about, I saw somebody give a talk about J. Alfred Prufrock the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, the poem by T.S. Eliot. And in his talk, he didn't talk about the context of the poem, really, like what time it was written in. He just read to us the beginning and then started kind of unpicking the language of the poem to help us see it. And I, and I thought about that when I was reading the story because there's this bit where uh, Clarice describes the laugh of Cleophus. That was the bit that I wanted to talk about. You have the queued up to read him? Yeah, it, uh, the paragraph is, Me oh my, Cleophus Sanders said, and laughed big and long, the kind of laughter that could go on and on, rising and rising, restarting itself if need be, like yeast. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's one of the things where I was like, is it possible to think too much about a story? Because I kept thinking about that line, about how you begin to see it everywhere. You see the idea of something you know, that continues to rise, even if it gets beaten down, it comes back and gets bigger. You see it in those sentences I was talking about that that catch on themselves and then somehow unravel to explode, right? That first paragraph I read is just, those sentences won't stop even when they try to turn. Yeah, it's incessant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It catches you right up. I begin to even see it in the name Clarice because it starts in this hard place, cuh, and then you hit this er sound, Claire, and it's like you get tangled up in there and then you get is, Clarice. <laughs> And you get released I mean, maybe at, the at end. that point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like, yeah, maybe No, you much. can't. There no. is no thinking about it. Whether it's wrong or not, it's, you can't think about it. And, you, and then I'm beginning to see it in the doubled overedness. Everyone talks about her yeah. period, like the way that, that bread, when you're kneading the dough, you, you fold it over on itself constantly. Fold it over, fold it over, fold it over. And then it rises. And I see it in the, the there's a moment about a third or a halfway through the story where she tries to rise, and it says she rises unsteadily. Mm-hmm. And so even in those images of her folded over, starting to rise, and then finally at the end, she, you know, she's fully raised. She is <laughs> fully, fully proofed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so much. Um, Why did you have that queued up? But it was just one of the sentences that I really enjoyed in the story. And there were many that were both elegantly put and perfectly described and I I guess the thing that sticks with me now and I mean we should probably check back in 10 years to see if I'm still thinking about the story um the thing that sticks with me now is the kind of is the way that Clarice is living inside of expectations her expectations of herself other people's expectations of herself and that Cleophus is this moment, this opportunity. And that's where the story ends, where she's just about to walk through this door of opportunity and it feels very special, very momentous. This is the moment of her life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I actually felt there was some interesting 
uh, corollaries, interesting connections between the two stories. My pick for this week is Laurie Moore's The Jewish Hunter, which was in The New Yorker in 1989, but I found in her collection from uh, four or five years ago. I believe this is your first selection from The New Yorker of this season. It is my first selection, yeah. <laughs> you you have picked a few. I'll, we'll discuss that in the finale about quite how many there have been. 85. <laughs> so this story is about Odette, who is a poet that take, who takes a library fellowship out in the boonies. Uh, she's from New York, obviously, which is where all poets are from, I think, in literature. Um, and while she's out there, she starts dating a man called Pinky Elliot. And it's kind of about... <laughs> I'm enjoying that I mentioned the poet by T.S. Eliot uh, without really thinking about there's a joke in The Jewish Hunter about how Pinky Eliot would know the difference <laughs> T. between T.S. Eliot and Pinky Eliot. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. Nice. Maybe that's why it was in the back of your brain. Um, oh, this story. Like like your pick this week, this is a story that's been with me for for a while and occasionally surfaces in my mind. And I, I think about moments and about images and about the characters. And... And I wonder if maybe some of those things that stay with you or why there's feels like there's some resonance between them. It starts out with a discussion between Odette and her buddy Laird uh, in this small town and they're in the gym together working out. And she describes this place where they are as as there were gyms, but no irony or coffee shops. And (laughs) right from that one phrase, I was like, oh, this is what a sentence can do. This is you know, right at the beginning of my journey into loving short stories. And I had just never really experienced writing like this before. That was so, so incisive and so able to put things right in their place, however uncomfortable that place is. And however much I might be afraid of really looking and really seeing something in that place. And I I find that when I read Laurie Moore, it's like she opens up my eyes to the reality around me and Mm. enables me to see more clearly. Gives you the courage to see. Yeah, totally, Mm. totally. In this story, I guess Odette is going through a little bit of that same process, right? She has been in New York for a long time. She's been a poet for a long time. And she has built up this uh, carapace of irony and defensiveness and um i want to say the phrase being too cool for school but i want a better phrase for it than that um i i believe uh, hiding herself beneath a carapace of irony is a strong enough enemy oh really you think yeah it's one of the things that reminded me of the other story both of these stories center around women who have constructed shells which are uh, which they believe protect them from the world Mm mm-hmm um but maybe there's uh, other effects <laughs> yeah maybe maybe there are and so she goes out with this guy pinky who seems like a very kind man and it seems like <laughs> never has that sounded so demeaning yeah so, i know what you mean though but i guess i said it like that because it's so surprising to her yeah yeah like she has not right. encountered kindness in a long time yeah, yeah. that is the way that she sees it yeah unmakes her <laughs> It, it it penetrates this carapace of irony and, and uh, self-doubt and and just it causes her to kind of re-examine what she is and what she's doing in a very beautiful way. But equally, what this story does, it does not paint Pinky as being this 
saint-like innocent from the countryside. He has his own set of foibles and fears and weird things like wanting to watch documentaries about the Holocaust after sex. But, you know, that's fine. He's still, you don't think that's weird? It's a little weird. Yeah. Maybe he just watches it. You know, I was going in my mind, I was like, I wonder if he watches this documentary every night or if he just watches it when he has sex or if he just watches it when he has a particular kind of sex. Like, we don't get shown the other nights when Odette's not there. Also, I think it, it goes into a bit of the title of the story, The Jewish Hunter. This is a this is a guy, Pinky, who grew up having no idea of his Jewish heritage, no mm-hmm. idea that his parents had died in the concentration camps. And mm-hmm. when somebody calls him a Jew and beats him up, it's only the day after yeah. that wound is inflicted upon him when his grandmother's like, yeah. Yeah, you're Jewish. That's us. Yeah, we didn't... Also, your parents, they died in the thing with the Jews. Yeah. That happened at one time. Um, And all those other times in the past, hopefully not the future. Um, uh, That actually was one of the things that, that stayed with me is his constant watching of the Holocaust videos. It felt a, a piece of, of Odette's... Um, kind of constant searching for herself, the way she sometimes describes herself as someone who is just a friend. Like she maybe occasionally will get close to herself, but at the end of the story, there's this amazing description of how she is like a a fond friend or a future friend. A future friend of herself. Throughout the story, there's a sense that this this is a, a woman who, as a couple of quotes make clear, not necessarily said by her, but said by the story. Uh, one is Odette's friend that she's working out with says, after he's tried to describe who Pinky is, he says, somehow in this mangled presentation, I fear I've confused you. Uh, and then there's this other quote, which is in the, the voice of Odette, describing those videos mm-hmm. that Pinky watches. Uh, Odette says, it seemed at moments confused about what it was about, a confusion brought on by knowing exactly. And that's the way I felt about Odette. That's what it feels like, partly the hunting, the, the circling around, the sense that she knows so many things exactly, right? Irony and all of these things have prepared her. She knows, but she doesn't ask. She doesn't, you know, she, she when Pinky right, asks her... she stopped her, interrogating the world and herself. And so those, those things all felt of a piece. He's watching those videos maybe in part trying to find a way back to who he was that he never knew. And, and what I loved about the relationship between Odette and Pinky is at the beginning, Odette, just like Clarice in the other story, is, is folded over on herself. She's with that guy in the mm-hmm. gym, you know, stretching her body out to no place in particular, just bending herself in pieces. And it felt like with Pinky, you know, after living a whole life coiled around and wrapped around herself and seeing everything, and you know, she's finally found a place where she can unroll herself and exist. Yeah, rather than feeling like there is a way that she is supposed to be, that mm, yeah. she can just be. So there's this quote, uh, they go to see a movie together, and she wanted, she, it says, she wanted either Pinky or herself to say something incisive or pr- provocative about directorial vision or the narrative parameters of cin- cinematic imagery, but neither of them did. And you just think, it's at that point where you think, We all have hopes for the people we want to be and the people that we meet. But you can see that at this point, Odette is so far away, so far kind of paddling out of her depth that she's she's lost track of uh, who she is, who Pinky is, and who possibly they are together or could be together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's this recurring darkness thing that, that keeps cropping up in this story. There's an amazing 
uh, scene where Pinky takes Odette into a cave. Oh, yeah. A, a local tourist attraction. Uh, yeah, a local tourist attraction out past Humphrey Bogart. And the tour guide, after they've led them deep into the cave, says, and now we will show you the cave and its natural lighting, <laughs> which is a phrase I love because it just means they turn off the lights and the cave's natural lighting is not. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's nothing. And in that darkness, Odette can't see herself. And she reaches out, you know, she, she goes hungrily mm. for, for Pinky. And there's a, there's a few other moments where feels like, right, you said she's under this carapace of irony. People are hiding from themselves. And there's a moment where near the end, Pinky says to her, you know, this, all, all this wandering around you do, how's anyone going to get close to you? Mm. And I think we are saying about how she loses track of herself. It felt um, embodied in that, that kind of feeling of fumbling around in the dark and and that her natural lighting is that darkness. Like she can't see it and she's craving something to fill it and she doesn't know what it is. There was a, a moment in the scene where Pinky was hunting out, they were out hunting deer and Pinky wounds this deer and he's like, and now I gotta go kill it. Where it was almost like I felt like there, there was some sense of Odette having this wounded heart and it was like, was Pinky the person that was finally going, you know, to to put her put her down, to kind of a mercy killing of a half-lived life kind of thing. You know, was he going to be able to take the this wounded creature and end its suffering? And ultimately the wounded creature is like, no, yeah. no, I'm not going down yet. I'm going to carry on in this wounded life towards something. Yeah. One of the things that breaks me into about this story every time I read it is the description of when Pinky first kisses her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it that, gets yeah. into this idea that she hasn't experienced kindness i love the the descriptions of physical contact in the story because it's 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 that those moments as you'll hear as emma reads it, anyway it's in those moments where you can we can feel the irony you can feel the distance fall away his lips push sleepily against her own to find a nest in hers and to stay there moving as if in words but then not in words at all his hands going around her in a soft rustle up the back of her sweater to her bare waist and spine and spreading there, blooming large and holding her just briefly until he pulled away, gathered himself back to himself and quietly shifted the car into drive. And you know, I almost blush every time I read that because it seems so intimate and so... It's not, not the way the British people write the kissing. <laughs> it's not the way you kiss in England either. It's not the way they kiss in New York. They're just at the cash machines. Yeah, they just By line the way, up the cash machines. By the way, Laura is very funny. There's a bit where she's like, we don't dance in New York. Piggy's like, what do you do? She's like, stand in line at the cash machine. I know. Just <laughs> where the fuck does that line, line come from? Machine. It's amazing. Uh, Was yeah, that a thing in the 80s? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. but They just I didn't have enough. Like, Maybe cash machines were a new thing. Uh, it could be. I think it's also just like here. If you walk around London at lunchtime, what people That's are true. doing is standing in line at the cash machine. Definitely not uh, dancing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, where did that come from is interesting. I feel like her, I love the way that Lori Moore writes. It feels like she's hunting for the thing. Like her, her sentences were like wound, 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 wound. And then she will zero in on the kill and go, and then you will yeah. die. Oh, like for example, this, this, <laughs> this extended bit where she's describing how bad she is at love, where uh, Laurie Moore writes, she was bad at love. There were people in the world who were good at love and people who were bad at it. She was bad. She used to think she was good at love, that it was intimacy she was bad at. But you had to have both. Love without intimacy, she knew, was an unsung tune. It was all in your head. You said, listen to this. 
but what you found yourself singing was a tangle, a nothing, a heap. And it's like, you know, it starts, it's just do 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 Yeah. You you read the the second line of the story, the line about uh there was no irony and no coffee shops. And the first sentence of the story is this was in a faraway land. Right? This feeling of a of a fairy tale, of going mm. off in this fantasy adventure. And it could seem incongruous, which is always my first sign that I should pay attention. Yeah. Like, what's going on? Oh, I'm suddenly a little out of sorts. Exactly, right? And, and to which, you know, there could be a natural reaction of, well, that's weird. That doesn't seem like it should be there. But of course, the natural reaction, as we know from reading these stories, is to withhold judgment for as long <laughs> as possible until the last possible instant. And that incongruity, it felt like it, it glimpsed something at two places. There's a, there's a place later in the story where when she's debating with herself, even though she already knows what she's going to do, about whether or not to stay with Pinky or have Pinky come back with her to New York. There's so much to love about about how it ends in her reverie, imagining what the future will hold for her. Not just the kind of the far future of her life, but the immediate She's going to stop at this drugstore and somebody's going to ring up the wrong price on the cash till and how that she then takes that very mundane experience and it crumbles down under Laurie Moore's words until she ends up talking about history of all kinds that eats its own lips. And I just, oh my goodness. Odette is constantly in the in the throes of um, being crushed by an imagined future history. It crumbles it down, and it, but to me it also fills it with that infinity, that, mm-hmm. that, that sense of story. One of the things outside of what I'm, I'm going to read was in those descriptions of, of kissing. That reminded me of Joseph Campbell talking about the call to adventure and the experience of adventure as these timeless moments where you're both fully within yourself and entirely outside of yourself. And that, that was what adventure was, was a sense of timelessness and kind of self selfless selfness and that's what i felt in the story was there are these moments of adventure and it felt like she's calling to that at the beginning and then pushing it away immediately in the second sentence she can't quite settle in to that adventurous tone that that sense and it's there it's there at the end when she says she should stay she should stay here with him an orphan him with love's unorphaning live wise and simple in a world monstrous enough for years of horrors and death and poems of horrors and death so monstrous how could one live in it at all one had to build shelters one had to make pockets and live inside them she should live where there were trees she should live where there were birds no bird no tree had ever made her unhappy that's where i hear that kind of storybook that kind of childish sense of to go away child to where the waters are wild to where the woods are wild and the waters deep i don't remember how that quote goes but you know what i mean and it feels like because again the power of perspective that a story is always about who's telling it and why that this is a story told in the past tense and it's like in that first line she starts in that kind of fairy tale that kind of adventurous story tone She allows herself for a moment to begin to believe that this is that kind of story. Thanks for listening, readers. It is, well, at this point, almost certain that we did not talk about all the stories that exist in the universe. So if you want to recommend stories to us for next season, uh, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storylogical, which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle.
I almost forgot how to spell it. <laughs> um, you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at EG Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. If you have enjoyed this episode um, or this season, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find us and we love it as well. Uh, and if you are constitutionally opposed uh, to iTunes, you can always find us on Stitcher and tweet that. Or you can go and find someone of a political party different than yours and tell them they should listen to this podcast called Story Logical. <laughs> Maybe, you know, also talk to them about other things. Talk to people. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not all on the iTunes. It's not all in the Twitters. Talk to people in meat space. Yes. Also dirt space. Air space. Uh, and of course, uh, for show notes, gifts of appropriate and inappropriate type, and for a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. Shall I, shall, I, shall I wait for you to return? Um, I mean, I can start. I can, I can get the ball rolling. I wonder what game that was where it was such a big deal to get the ball rolling. Like when people Sisyphus. say that. I think it was Sisyphus, that, that game. Oh, you think it was Sisyphus? No, no. But no one else was helping Sisyphus. <laughs> exactly. Sisyphus. Well, Sisyphus has had to get that ball rolling all by his lonesome. Mm-hmm. That was a lonely mountain on which that... You know what Sisyphus needed? He needed his own brokeback mountain. He needed to find he him someone up there on the oh, top of that he mountain. Did. He needed his own good buddy who would yeah. rip his trousers off for him. Yeah, he did need that. And then, I mean, let me tell you, he would have rolled that, that ball up there over and over again. <laughs> and he would have been smiling. He would be smiling. Mr. Mr. Albert Camus. We have solved your conundrum. That is why Sisyphus sings. I don't know why I've gone back to my James Joyce preacher voice. <laughs> oh, that exactly. Or why it's the, the James Joyce voice. Ready? Three, two, one. Stop.